Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Thank you, Donnie and musicians. The book of Habakkuk. If you want to go ahead and turn there. I am so happy to talk about Habakkuk's distress today. I am so excited. I've been thinking about this for weeks. I really love this book. I love all the Bible. But I think this is a book. How many of you have ever heard a sermon out of Habakkuk? I've heard one. Jonathan. Okay. We've got a few. Okay. So, everybody's going to hear a sermon on Habakkuk today. If nothing else, you can say, you can say that. What was different about church today? You know, also, I was thinking about shouting the victory. I, I guess growing up, you know, I loved victory in Jesus and songs like that that you could really belt out. I'm looking forward to shouting victory. I know we can't really, I say we can't, you know, we don't do that, you know, in church. Somebody might get scared, you know, on a Sunday morning. People might think we're crazy. But maybe every now and then we might ought to try it. But aren't you looking forward to that? You shout at football games. We shout at basketball games. Aren't you, aren't you looking forward to shouting? I am. Amen. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Um, Habakkuk, I think, does some shouting at the end of this, this book. This book fits together so well with also just praying for Nicaragua and, and thinking about their distress there. We're looking at a prophet who is distressed. That's a great title for the book of Habakkuk. We're going we're gonna to look and just overview this book. Um, we're not going to do it justice. There's so many treasures in this book. Oh my goodness, it's, it's so amazing. The Word of God is just so amazing. I, I, I had a hard time even, even putting together a sermon. I, just, I was enjoying studying this book so much. And there's so much in it. I encourage you to make this book, and not just this book, but all of the minor prophets, to make them kind of your new passion, to understand what God is doing here. These are not throwaway books. All Scripture is God-breathed. Amen? We have something beautiful and special. You know, um, when I was a kid, I used to, I used to like uh, static. I kind of still like static, you know. You get, you get, you get laundry out of the the dryer and you got the, the dryer sheet that's stuck somewhere. And it all, it's always, has it ever, you know, hidden itself in a, in a shirt and you've worn the shirt around all day and, and then finally you find it, you know, or you folded it or there's, there's one stuck in a drawer. And my kids love finding those. And static is great. It clings, you know, makes stuff cling. I used to love playing with mag, magnets um, and, and seeing them cling to each other and, and, and come together. And, and embrace and pull them apart and then let them magnetize back together. And my kids, they, they, they cling to me. Uh, that's one of the great things about being a dad is that sometimes, whether it's out of love, they want to just, you know, hang to you like a koala bear, or maybe they're scared and they need to hang, to you, hang, hang uh, on you, or maybe they just want to wrestle and so they embrace you. Well, do you know what you call someone who embraces Someone who grabs hold of you, someone that's, that's clingy, someone who grabs you. You know what you call that? You call it Habakkuk. 
That's what Habakkuk means. It means one who embraces, one who clings, one who maybe even wrestles. There's a, you know, it, it can kind of mean that in, in some sense. But that's what this prophet's name means. And so even though it's odd, I don't know of anybody, maybe somebody's named their child Habakkuk. I don't think it's made the top 20 list of, of English names, um, at least not in a long time. But that's what Habakkuk means, one who embraces and we're going to see Habakkuk embrace God. He's going to wrestle with God. He's going to cling to God. His very name speaks to the emotion and the tone with which he writes this book. Not a lot is known about Habakkuk except what we find in this book. He was a contemporary with Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zephaniah, who Adam will preach on next week. Uh, he would have prophesied in the years after Zephaniah, but before Ezekiel and Daniel, most likely during the reign of King Jehoiakim. He was the wicked, uh, or Jehoiakim was the wicked son of Israel's last good king, Josiah. We'll talk about him in a minute. And the years would have been sometime between 610 B.C. Um, and, and 605 B.C. So you're looking at somewhere around 600 years before Jesus. You just want to put that number in your your brain. I know some of you don't like dates, but dates are really important. And, and so just a rough estimate, 600 years before Christ. So 2,600 years ago, we're looking at Habakkuk. As I said, Habakkuk's got some real jewels in it. They're, they're really special verses in it. Um, it is the Old Testament book where we see the phrase, the just shall live by faith, or the righteous shall live by faith. You've heard that before. You've heard the Apostle Paul use it. Author of Hebrews uses it. How about this? In your, mercy, in your wrath, remember mercy. You've heard maybe people say that before. That comes from Habakkuk. Here's a beautiful one. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory and the waters as the waters cover the sea. How about this? Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your day which you would not believe, though it were told to you. So this book is... It's different. It's different from the other prophetic books we've been looking at. Uh, one reason is the other books address directly these other nations. It's God giving them words, and then they speak these warnings or declarations or proclamations to these other nations. Well, what you have with Habakkuk, even though God tells Habakkuk later on in the book to write down these words and then send them out as a warning, this book is first and foremost a conversation between Habakkuk and God. It's like looking into a diary. It's much more personal. It, it reads easier. It's amazing why we don't read this book more. It's, it's a lot easier to understand comparatively. And so it, it, is, it is different. But at its root, it is a conversation between a distressed prophet and the God whom he serves. And the question is, why is he distressed? And what we'll see in Habakkuk, it has only three chapters. We'll read through all of them today. So we're going to get a lot of Scripture. The great thing about reading a lot of Scripture, and if I read Scripture, is uh, that's actually valuable. I know, I know that every word of Scripture that I speak is valuable. My words may not be valuable, but the words of Scripture are certainly valuable. And in chapters 1 and 2, you see Habakkuk give some 
complaints to God, and then God responds. And in chapter 3, you see Habakkuk um, offer up a prayer of praise to God, and we're going to see that. But why is he initially distressed? How many of you have ever been distressed before? Don't we talk about stress a lot in our culture? Stress, 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 stress. I'm stressed out. You're stressed out. He's stressed out. She's stressed out. We're all stressed out. Everybody seems to be stressed in America and distressed. So why was Habakkuk distressed? Well, let me look at this. Uh, here's, a, here's a very uh, rough timeline that um, I want you to look at. Uh, this is very, very rough, but I, but I want to kind of set the stage of what's going on in Habakkuk's world right now. If you look, uh, 2,000 years before Christ, roughly, is when Abraham lived. And that's when you have the 12 tribes of, of Judah, you had the uh, uh, slavery in Egypt, and then Moses brought them out, and you had the time period of the judges. And then you get to David 1,000 years ago. And David was the second of three kings who uh, ruled over a united Israel. All 12 tribes united. But then Solomon's son Rehoboam and a guy named Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was a wicked person, and Rehoboam wasn't good either. They split the kingdom, basically. And you had a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And there were 39 or 40 rulers between those two kingdoms, about 20 in each. The northern kingdom had no righteous rulers. In fact, it always goes back to Jeroboam and it says that this king continued in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. What Jeroboam did was he set up, uh, he, he, he basically um, made a business calculation and he said these people are going to keep going back to Jerusalem to worship, so let's set up uh, two other centers of worship. And so he put one of them in Samaria, made Samaria his capital, and he created some other uh, false components of worship. He corrupted the worship of Israel, and that continued for decades, introduced idolatry in as well. And um, it's one reason today uh, when the, the northern kingdom was taken off by Assyria about 200 years later, the northern kingdom lasted for about 200 years, the southern kingdom lasted for about 320 years, but when the Assyrians, this is really interesting, they took off, um, they went into Samaria and they invaded Samaria and they took uh, uh, all the important people out of Samaria and then they replaced them with people from foreign nations. And so then what you had was you had intermingling, uh, intermarriage between pagans and people that were supposed to be worshiping the one true God but weren't. And that was the seed for the future hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans kind of started there. Started with a northern kingdom, southern kingdom thing. So there's a history there with the northern kingdom. And they had no righteous kings. It was, it was 200 years of idolatry and one dynasty uh, committing assassinations and taking over uh, for another dynasty and, and mutinies and all kinds of bloodshed and wars. And it was just awful. And God finally judged them and sent them away with Assyria. But he left the southern kingdom for a time. The southern kingdom... Um, David's tribe, Judah. And they had a continual line of kings that came from King David. And sad to say, and one queen who was very, very wicked. But there were only six, seven, eight of those 19, 20 rulers that could be considered righteous. 
men like Hezekiah and his, uh, and his ancestor Josiah. Josiah was the last of the good kings. And after Josiah died, Josiah had tried to bring reforms. It was during Josiah's time that they had recovered the book of the law. They had lost it for a time, and they had recovered the book of the law. And, and, jo- and Josiah repented before the Lord, and he began to knock down the high places on which they, they worshipped falsely, and he began to clean up the nation. But sad to say, after Josiah died, and his son took over Jehoiakim, they started to go back to their old ways. And these people... They just became idolaters and corrupt and there was violence and injustice and corrupt leadership. And it's this that Habakkuk is distressed about because he lived through the time of Josiah. He saw these good things return to the nation. He saw the peace. He saw the prosperity. He saw the worship of God. He saw the goodness that comes when a people worship God. And then he saw it all crumble And he saw it continue year after year after year until they would be taken into captivity by a foreign nation. And so he's distressed. So let's read Habakkuk's first complaint. Verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, Lord, must I call for help? And you do not listen or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save. Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective. Injustice never emerges for the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. So he's distressed. He's living in a time where there is corruption. There is idolatry. And there is evil and sin. And yet God answers. You know, Habakkuk is basically saying here, God, why aren't you doing something? God, you're not doing enough. Have have any of you ever felt that way? You feel in your heart, you look around and say, God, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you answering that prayer that we're praying? Why aren't you answering this prayer that I'm praying. God, when when will you rise up and answer your promises? When will you do something? You have the power to. Why aren't you? And so his argument here is, God, you're doing too little. You're, You're not doing anything. I think that's very applicable to us in our lives. You're not doing anything. You're not doing enough. Let's read God's answer. Look at the nations, Habakkuk, and observe. Be utterly astounded, for something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. 
They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. What has God just said? God's answer is that he is raising up the Babylonians. The nation of Babylon. And that's bad news in Habakkuk's ears. Because Babylon is bad. Babylon is bad. Babylon, or Neo-Babylon, it's kind of the second time that they, they came to power, would become a major empire over the region. They were led by King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's try saying that five times fast. Um, you should really try. It's a lot of fun. Um, Nebuchadnezzar means Nabu, protect my son, or favorite of Nabu. Nabu was the son of the chief god of Babylon, Marduk. Nebuchadnezzar reigned by himself from 605 B.C. to, to 562, so around 40 years. Nebuchadnezzar was an ambitious, arrogant, powerful, wicked man. He was, a, he was an ultimate conqueror. In fact, the Bible speaks of Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It speaks so much of him you would not believe. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Esther, Ezra. Maybe even more than Pharaoh. I haven't run the numbers, but as far as a, a king that, is, that was not an Israelite, Nebuchadnezzar is spoken of even more than most of the Israelite kings. He is a prominent figure in the Bible. He is someone that we have to know. He is important. He defeated the Egyptians and the Assyrians at the Battle of Carchemish. Let me show you this map here of the Babylonian Empire. And so you see where Jerusalem is in relation to uh, Babylon. And here's another map after it. I'm getting you some education this morning, but I pray that this education, this information, turns into inspiration and not just data. Shows you some of the, the modern countries today in white. It's a real place. It's a real people. It's a real history. And so Nebuchadnezzar was a, a, a great conqueror. He built the great city of Babylon, mostly on slave labor. Its walls were 60 miles around the city, basically in a square, 15 miles on each side. You may say, well, that's not a lot of wall. That's a lot of wall. That's a lot of wall. I've heard that the, uh, or I read that the, the bricks of the wall were bright blue. How's that for a color? And that on the bricks, uh, it said, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. These walls were so great that you could have chariot races on top of them. They were so wide. It was Nebuchadnezzar who, uh, legend has it, built the one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Here's an artist's rendering of that. Built those for his queen. Nebuchadnezzar dreamed a dream. And Daniel, we find out about this in the book of Daniel. Daniel interprets the dream for him, and it is a dream of a statue of empires. And this is one of the most powerful proofs for the Bible's validity. These, uh, the statue be on the screen here. It talks about this uh, in the scriptures, and if you go and you look at history, the golden head is Nebuchadnezzar, 
in the Babylonian Empire. The arms are the Medo-Persians and the, the waist would be the Greek Empire and it's rumored that the legs would have been the Roman Empire which split into two, east and west. And then you get into speculation as to what the, the feet and the toes made of iron and clay mean. So there's a lot of prophecy there, but Nebuchadnezzar was the head. And Daniel told him this, that God was going to use him to be a world conqueror, to be a nation conqueror. It was Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed Jerusalem's temple and its walls, setting up the need for Zerubbabel and Nehemiah to rebuild years later. He kidnapped Daniel and other nobles and took thousands and thousands of Jews into exile. It was Nebuchadnezzar who, in a rage of fury, after he had appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to positions of authority, was enraged when they would not bow down to his image. This was after he saw the, the, the statue, and so he got even more full of himself, and he, he made a golden statue, presumably of himself, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down and worship it, and he threw them into a fiery furnace in his anger. Jeremiah 39.6 gives a, just a taste of Nebuchadnezzar's cruelty. It says, At Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes and also slaughtered the Judean commanders. Then he blinded Zedekiah and bound him with bronze chains. The king of Babylon brought Zedekiah to Babylon where he kept him in custody until his dying day. And so think about what this means in Habakkuk's ears. He hasn't seen all of this, but he knows that Babylon is on the rise. They are not yet a world power, but God is saying, I'm going to raise them up and they are going to come and conquer Judah, conquer the southern kingdom. And Habakkuk says, not God, you're doing too little now. He says, God, you're doing too much now. You ever, you ever thought that? God, I don't like the direction you're going. God, I don't like, I don't like this plan. This isn't my plan. I didn't imagine being here. This seems a little bit more difficult. This isn't the smooth sailing that I wanted. And so Habakkuk, it's, it's so ironic on one hand, he says, God, you're doing too little. And then on the other hand, he's, he's going to complain, God, you're, you're doing too much. And God's going to bring the Babylonians in to judge the wickedness of Judah and to correct them. And so let's read Habakkuk's second complaint. Verse 12, are you not from eternity, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? You will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? And so, see, his argument is, God, I was complaining about why you didn't do something about Judah's wickedness. But now you're going you're gonna to increase the power of somebody that's even more wicked to come and, and correct us? How does that work? Why are you doing this? You've made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them up with a hook, pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet, gather them in their fishing net. That's why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by those things their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? 
And then Habakkuk does something interesting. He says, you know what? I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. So he's going to be looking. In other words, he's saying, I'm I'm symbolic. I'm going to be looking for this nation coming to conquer us. I will watch to see what he, God, will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. And so he spoke in his peace, but now he's saying, I will wait, and I will wait on God, and I will watch to see what God says and what I should reply. Very interesting. God, you're doing too much. But then God, God gives a very interesting answer. His second answer. Verse 2, The Lord answered me, Write down this vision. Clearly inscribe it on tablets so that one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He's talking about the wicked person. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Now, real quickly, let me stop. Paul used this, this phrase, and I don't think it's... I don't think it, it's, um, I don't think these two things are incompatible, but when Paul uses this in Romans and Galatians, he's talking more of personal salvation, that we are justified before God by faith in Christ, that Christ, Jesus died on the cross to set us free from our sin. He was a substitute sacrifice on the cross. He bore our penalty for sin, the wrongs that we did. He took the penalty for that so that if we want to be forgiven by God, if we want to be close to God, if we want to embrace God, if we want to know God, all we need to do is not go to church, not pray, not do religious things. Rather, what we need to do is cling to Jesus, trust in Jesus, throw ourselves upon the mercy of Christ because it is what Christ has done that will set us free. And so Paul uses it in a personal salvation, a personal in a, a, um, a salvation sense. Habakkuk is using it rather in a survival sense, I believe. What he's saying is, my righteous people will survive by faith in me. It's kind of the same thing the Hebrew writer says. The context isn't really talking about spiritual salvation. It's talking about how are you going to get through this time, Habakkuk? How are, how are my righteous ones in Israel and in Judah with this coming nation, how are they going to survive? They're going to survive by faith. And what links these two things together, personal salvation, personal survival during distressing times, is that the person of God is to be a person of faith in God. We're to trust God. And that's the message. Verse 5, moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. I think here he's pointing to Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar, he conquered all these nations, and he brought people from different nations to his nations, to his nation. He collects all the peoples for himself. And then God does something amazing. He actually pronounces five woes which is a strong curse. It was a strong pronouncement on someone. And he, he gives five woes. In other words, he's saying to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, they've got theirs coming. Their judgment is coming. Let's read those together, the five woes. Verse 6, Won't all of these take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles about him? They will say, Woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? and loads himself with goods taken in pledge. 
Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up? Then you will become spoiled for them since you have plundered many nations. All the peoples who remain with you remain will, you, will plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence against lands and cities and all who live in them. And so he's attacking Nebuchadnezzar's um, theft and his plundering. Verse 9, Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high to escape from the reach of disaster. You have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. I think it's interesting. I can't prove this, but the stones crying out from the wall. Remember, there's a story later on in Daniel with Belshazzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. He sees handwriting on the wall. I think that's just kind of interesting. It says he's going to be judged. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that the people's labor only to fuel and fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. Not your glory, Nebuchadnezzar, but the Lord's glory. Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies for the one who crafts its shape, trusts in it, and makes idols that cannot speak. So he's attacking his idolatry there. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. There is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let everyone on earth be silent in his presence. What God has just done is told Habakkuk, that his fierce judgment, his righteous judgment, is going to come upon all the wicked and going to come upon Nebuchadnezzar for his sins. And that all the earth will be silent in the presence of the Lord. So, then in chapter 3, what is Habakkuk's response? He prays a prayer of praise that once you get to the last verse, you find out was a song. And so it's, it's very interesting. I wish we could have heard what the song would have sounded like. Verse 1 of chapter 3, let's read it and see what Habakkuk's re response is. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. That just means it needs to be put to music. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman, the, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from His hand. This is where His power is hidden. Plague goes before Him. Pestilence follows in His steps. He stands and shakes the earth. 
He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Cushan in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your rage against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. You march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck, Selah. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the great waters. I heard, and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in Yahweh, in God. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights for the choir director on stringed instruments. There was so much in there. I know that you and I don't process it all. But at the end of the day, here's what Habakkuk is saying. Though everything fails, though there's no cattle in the fields, no grass in the fields, no cattle in the stalls, though everything is lost, I will have victory in God. I will trust in Him. And so to close out very quickly, what are some quick lessons that we can get from Habakkuk? I have seven for you real quickly. First, God will judge all the wicked. That's the message of the book, one of the messages. God will judge all the wicked. It may come, it may, may take a while, but just like in the case of Babylon, it would take a few years to judge them on earth, but all the wicked will be judged one day in that final judgment. Number two, God requires His people's continued obedience and holiness. You and I don't get a pass on morality because we're God's people. And so, we see from this book that God will bring suffering and will bring judgment into the lives of His people in order to correct them if we don't correct ourselves, if we don't repent. The message of Habakkuk about how God can control nations and how He will judge the wicked, that's not just the message for the outside world. There are applications for the United States and for all the world, but there's application for us as the church. Where do we need to start? What do you need to repent of? What do you need to turn away from and give to the Lord? God requires continual obedience and holiness, not just a one-time prayer of salvation. He is not just Savior, He is Lord. 
and my life and yours. And I know we fight this battle against sin, but we have to turn again to Him and turn again and turn again and flee and embrace Him. Third, God's people should be distressed about evil and sin. Habakkuk was. I think sometimes we're distressed about the wrong things. What does the house look like? How's the ball game going to go? My car won't start. Maybe some of those are valid concerns for the day. But Habakkuk was looking at violence. Habakkuk was looking into his culture and he was burdened. Burdened over those who were rebellious against God. Those who were unrepentant. Those who were, who were practicing idolatry. That there's violence and injustice. And you can't tell me that in El Dorado, Arkansas, and in the United States of America, that we don't have violence. Violence against the unborn. Hatred. Injustice. Corrupt leadership. Idolatries. There is so much that we can take for this, but are we distressed or are we apathetic? It is a good thing for God's people to have sincere burden. We sometimes act. Jesus, don't forget, Jesus was called a man of sorrows. I understand there is a time for joy and deep joy, but there is really no time for the Christian for triviality. We have one life. We need to go hard after joy as much as we can. We also need to feel the burden of those who are hurting and of the fact that our God is not receiving the glory that He deserves. And so we should be distressed about evil and about sin. And then we should go to God. And one of the great messages about this book is that God's people have permission to question Him. God's people, number four, we have permission to question God, respectfully, as Habakkuk did. But there's also a time for silence. Remember verse 20, chapter 3, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let everyone on earth be silent in His presence. Habakkuk made, he, he, he asked his questions, but then he was quiet. He made his prayers and then he said, I will wait for God's answer. I'm reminded of Jesus on the cross even saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Christ questioned why, then it's okay for us to do it too in some circumstances. If we're going to do it in the right spirit, I think there's a problem when we don't question God. When we aren't interacting with God, when we aren't pleading with God, God, what are you doing? We have to be careful about complaining and challenging God. We won't win an argument with God. I've had arguments with Him and I've lost. And you will too. We should not challenge God. We should inquire of Him and ask and Number five, all of our inquiring, all of our questioning of God should result in praise of God. That's what happens with Habakkuk. 
in chapter 3. Number 6, God is trustworthy. I think this is a major message. See, Habakkuk's, his real dilemma wasn't that God was doing too little or too much, that, that he, wasn't doing, that he was, wasn't doing the right thing or that he was doing the wrong thing necessarily. Habakkuk's ultimate dilemma was about God's character. He, he was asking God, who are you? And is your character trustworthy? And God answers him, and Habakkuk, of course, finds that answer himself by chapter 3. God is faithful to keep his promises. He made promises to this nation of Israel, and even though they went astray over and over again, he preserved them continually, and through them he brought about Jesus, our Savior. Remember verse 13, it says, You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. Even that may be pointing to Jesus the entire Old Testament, these books that seem so random, these minor prophets that we've been going through, there's one big message there. And you know what it is? The big message is that God keeps His promises. The entire Old Testament is about God keeping His covenant promises to Abraham and to David, to Isaac, to Jacob. That I will not leave you nor forsake you. I will keep my promises And so the Old Testament is all about God's faithfulness, and so is the book of Habakkuk. And finally, a bonus point to, to take home with you. God will have mercy on anyone who repents. Where am I getting that from the book of Habakkuk? I want to tell you that God will have mercy on anyone who repents, even the most wicked. The very reason that God said that the Israelites, that Judah was going to be taken into captivity to Babylon was because of the sins of King Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather. Manasseh was the most wicked king in the southern kingdom. God says it was because Manasseh shed innocent blood. He even sacrificed his own children. He was a wicked, wicked man, and he ruled for a long time, 50 years or so. But do you know what happened to Manasseh? Manasseh was taken captive by a foreign nation. He was imprisoned. And through that imprisonment, he was humbled. And he became a believer in God. He was saved. And he came back to his nation and he tried to make reforms. But he was too late. He had already done so much evil that he could not undo it all. And his son followed in his footsteps, Ammon, and became nearly as wicked as he was. But God forgave Manasseh, and I think we'll see King Manasseh in heaven, one of the most wicked kings in the southern kingdom. But you know who else I think we'll see in heaven? Nebuchadnezzar. It's ironic, and it's, it's highly debated, and it never actually says, but if you would, turn to Daniel chapter 4. I want to show you something as we close. Manasseh was the most wicked king of Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful ruler of the day and was a wicked king, arrogant king. But in Daniel chapter 4, we, we find that something very amazing happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. I think 
I think God spent a lot of time on Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the one that saw the fourth man in the furnace. He said, he looks like a son of man. Nebuchadnezzar knew Daniel very intimately, and no doubt Daniel told him about, about God over the years. And Daniel interpreted at least two dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. One was about the Statue of Empires, but the other was about a tree. A tree that would be cut down and its stump would be remained and that stump would be bound in shackles. And Daniel, uh, upon hearing this dream, actually is worried for Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar actually says to Daniel, don't worry. And Daniel tells him that it is for him. That it was about him being cut down. And in Daniel chapter 4 we have some amazing things and, and and the reason that it is is debated whether Nebuchadnezzar is a Christian or not will be in heaven is because of Daniel chapter 4 verse 8 where he appears to still take ownership of his God and he doesn't speak in that sentence as someone who knows God but let's start in verse 1 and we'll read the introduction then we'll skip down to 28. King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1, to those of every people, nation, and language who live in all the earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are His miracles and how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. Wow. Skip down to verse 28. All of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and you, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat the grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. In other words, he went crazy. And ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And to the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. Look what God can do. 
I'm not certain that Nebuchadnezzar knew the Lord, but I will say this. What he says in these pages of Scripture is more beautiful and more profound and more true of the Most High God than sadly most who claim Christ in our day know even to say. Amen? His words. Read them again. God did a profound work in His life, a profound change. And the message for us in that is this. He turns the heart of kings. But He can also turn and change your heart and mine. Anybody who repents. From Manasseh to Nebuchadnezzar to you and to me. And He can fill our minds and our lives and our hearts with the glory of the Lord. If you don't know Christ today, if someone like Nebuchadnezzar or Manasseh can repent and have mercy shown to them and be forgiven, be made right with God, so can you. Would you do that today? Would you ask Christ to save you? Would you believe His promise for you that what He did on the cross was enough to pay your debt and to give you new life? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your prophet Habakkuk. His distress has become our blessing. Your work has has become a message of life to us. I pray, God, that we would take the messages and the lessons that we see in this book and that we would live them out. We would be an obedient people to you, that we would be a people unafraid to approach the throne of grace with boldness and to question you, that our questioning would turn into praise because you have allowed us to trust in you and to see your wisdom and your compassion. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, that our distress, whatever distress we have, whatever anxiety, whatever fear, whatever worry, if it is consuming our lives, that we would believe the words of Peter to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. You cared for Habakkuk. You cared for your people then. You care for us now. Thank you, Father. Help us to embrace you cling to you more and more each day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand again. I can